You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Matthew. Here's Nate. Well, in Matthew chapter 8, we move past the Sermon on the Mount and we begin to see further descriptions of Jesus as the King. And in Matthew chapter 8 especially, we'll see different individuals approaching him as a king with petitions. And then we will also see his authority as a king over the elements and also over the demonic realm. And so the power of the king, the petitions that are being given to the king, and in the middle of all of this, the cost of discipleship, what it actually means to give yourself to this king named Jesus. And so it says in verse 1 that when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. So following the Sermon on the Mount, as he comes down, there are many people that are following him. His popularity is continuing to swell. And behold, verse 2, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. So this leper comes to Christ. Now, leprosy, or the word for leprosy here in verse 2, is a word that could refer to a few different kinds of skin diseases from that time. But nonetheless, leprosy in Scripture is a perfect picture of sin. Because this leprosy would kill slowly, it would be incurable, and it could only be removed by a miracle. And so leprosy is a wonderful picture of what sin does to mankind. It kills slowly. It is incurable except by a miracle, except by Christ. And so this leper comes to Jesus, which I so love because there was no attempt, obviously, to clean himself up. He knew that that was not possible. And so he came in his sickness, in his condition. And he says to the Lord, he kneels before the Lord and says to him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. If you will, you can make me clean. Now, in Matthew 6, this is the kind of prayer that Jesus said we are to offer to him. Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so even before we get to the church age, we already see this leper demonstrating that kind of prayer. If you are willing, he says to Jesus, you can make me well. You can make me clean. You can touch my body. You can heal me if you are willing. And I love this kind of heart from this leper, this kind of prayer, just surrendering our will to the will of of the Lord. I know for me sometimes I get so locked into the different things that I believe and would love to see happen in and through my life. And so often so much of that really feels like my will. And it's so nice to get to that place where I'm able to say, Lord, not as I will, but as you will. And Lord, if you are willing, if you are willing, if this is what you want to do, if you are willing, then I would love to see you do it. That was the attitude of this leper. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. You know, just you have the ability 
do you have the will? And Jesus, verse 3, stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. So this man, this leper, obviously demonstrated great faith in Jesus, and Jesus gave great grace to this man. Now, it's interesting because there are times where obviously the Lord is not willing to touch our bodies in the here and now. But I think we could say it like this, there is no one in all of human history that he does not will to heal. He wants to heal everyone, and I'll tell you what I mean. We learn from God's word that he is not willing that any should perish. He wants everyone to have everlasting life. And in that everlasting life comes a new body where healing takes place in a permanent sense. So in the eternal perspective, he desires for everyone to be made well, for everyone to find health. He wants that for all of us. But in the here and now, there are times where he wants to heal in the here and now and times that he doesn't want to heal in the here and now. And it's hard to always know his purposes. You might remember Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, when he received his vision from heaven and was given some kind of physical infirmity, a thorn of Satan, a messenger of Satan, a thorn of the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet him. And he prayed to the Lord to remove that thorn three times. And the Lord's response was, a simple, no, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. And so he wanted Paul to be in that condition. Here, though, Jesus was willing to touch this man. Just incredible grace flowing from Christ. And of course, it says there that Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. Uh, This man was an unclean man, but Jesus was more concerned with cleansing this man than he was with potentially touching something that was unclean and offending someone out there or something like that. And so Jesus was willing to touch that which was unclean. And of course, by touching him, you know, anything Jesus touches, the thing he touches does not rub off on him, but he rubs off onto the thing that he touches. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him in verse 4, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. So Jesus doesn't want any advertising yet at this moment. If everyone that he touched and healed would broadcast what he'd done for them, then Jesus would have to restrict his movements to the wilderness areas. And this would actually come to pass in a lot of his ministry time. He couldn't freely move about the cities and all of that because people wanted to see these miracles. But there was one group that Jesus was willing to receive advertising amongst. And those were the priests. He says, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded. This came from Leviticus 14. If a person was healed of leprosy, there were certain requirements that they were supposed to go through in order to be considered ceremonially 
clean. And so, more than likely, the priests really weren't very familiar with how to go through the whole Leviticus 14 thing. I'm sure they had to look it up because they would rarely have to use this. It was a supernatural thing for a man to be healed from leprosy. And so, obviously, a great rarity. Perhaps this was the first leper to ever go and present himself as healed of leprosy to the religious leaders. When, verse 5, he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. So Jesus shifts now over into Capernaum, leaves a mountain where he gives a sermon on the mount, on his way to Capernaum, heals the leper, and he enters Capernaum. Now, Capernaum is an interesting city. It's a blessed city in the sense that they were able to receive a lot of ministry from Christ. Much of what he did in Galilee was done from the base camp of Capernaum. And so he goes into Capernaum, and as he's there, this centurion, right, a a Roman soldier over other soldiers, came forward to Jesus and appealed to him and said, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. Notice what this man does. He just simply announces the situation to Jesus. It wasn't so much of even a petition, although obviously a petition is embedded within it, but just simply a announcing to Jesus of the problem. And he said to him in verse 7, I will come and heal him. You know, so Jesus shows favor first to the leper and now to this Gentile centurion. He says, I'll come and and I'll heal him. But the centurion replied, verse 8, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And so this man you know, clarifies his request to Jesus. He says, no, actually, I'm grateful that you're willing, but you don't need to come all the way to my home. Listen, I know what it's like to be in charge of soldiers. I say, go, and they go. I say, come, and they come. I say, do this, and they do it. And so Jesus is basically telling this man, you could speak the word from right here, only say a word, he says, and my servant will be healed. And Jesus, verse 10, when he heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Truly, truly, I say to you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Now this is one of the places in scripture that Jesus actually marvels over something. And here he marvels over the faith of this man. And he just says, Listen, I haven't even found this kind of faith in all of Israel. This kind of faith that realizes that I can, by a word, 
you know, without actually being present, I, by a word, could say it, and I have the authority to do it. I have the authority to execute what I want to execute with simply my words. This was incredible faith. This man understood, to a degree at least, the authority of Jesus. So I just love the prayer of this centurion man. First of all, I love that in verse 8, he says, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. This was a humble heart that this centurion was demonstrating before Christ, a true willingness to lay himself out before the Lord, not thinking much of himself, not coming in his own merit, but saying, Lord, I'm not even worthy of you. Great humility. But then to say, and Lord, I know of your authority. You say the word and it could be done. And of course, our prayer lives would be greatly benefited if this perspective could enter in more fully to our minds. That the Lord from heaven, with the spirit that he has embedded into us, the Lord from heaven is able to hear our cry. Able to, from heaven, speak into our situation. And able to, from heaven, say the word, and it will be done. Great authority that Christ possesses. And so this man understood the authority of Christ. You know, I find that for me, when I understand the authority of Jesus, when I'm conscious of his power and his might and his ability, uh, my prayer becomes much more bold. And my life becomes more bold. Much like the early church in Acts chapter 4 when some of their leaders were beaten for preaching the gospel. And they went back to the church and it says that they gathered together and they prayed. And as they prayed, one of the first things that they asked God or one of the first things that they prayed was, God, you are the creator of the heavens and the earth. You created all things. And, you know, as they confess that before God, ultimately their hearts were filled with great boldness because there was this sense and this understanding that God is powerful. God is mighty. God is strong. He was able to, with his words, create all that we see and all that we know. And so they fixed their minds upon the authority of God. And when they did, it calmed their hearts. It filled them with boldness and they were filled with faith. And that's what this man was filled with as well. And so Jesus said, listen, I found no faith like this in all of Israel. And then he segues into this little statement in verse 11 and 12, where he says, you know, listen, many are going to come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. This message and my kingdom goes way beyond, Jesus announces. My kingdom goes way beyond the Jewish race. It goes to all different nations, east, west, and recline at table with Abraham and Isaac. And he says, but the sons of the kingdom, these Jews, many of them will be thrown into outer darkness. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so torment, eternal judgment, separation from God. And so the centurion, Jesus, verse 13 said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Now in verse 14, 
we see a general statement here about Jesus's ministry in Capernaum. It says, when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she rose and began to serve him. And so Peter's mother-in-law is touched first and I love her response. She begins to serve out of gratitude and thankfulness. She gives her life and that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. This comes from Isaiah 53, where he says, He took our illness and bore our diseases. And so the general healing ministry of Jesus in Capernaum, the mother-in-law of Peter was touched, uh, many who were oppressed by demons, and all who were sick. Jesus cast out the demons, healed the sick, and Matthew, in his style, where he's often quoting the Old Testament, quotes and says, this was to fulfill what was spoken by Isaiah, that he took our illness and bore our diseases. And certainly that is exactly what Christ has done for us. Now, verse 18, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And so Jesus is always a little difficult to understand. And I'm sure at the moment there were things that confused the disciples. But here this large crowd gathers together. His popularity is on the rise. And when he sees it, he gives orders to go to the other side. In other words, let's depart. Uh, he wasn't interested in the crowd. He was interested in conducting the ministry that he was called to conduct. But crowds meant crucifixion. And he was not to be crucified before the time. And a scribe, verse 19, came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Notice the devotion from this scribe. I will follow you wherever you go. There was probably an emotional bent in this man. He was, you know, at this moment overwhelmed and confessing that he would do anything and whatever the Lord wanted him to do. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus isn't very encouraging to this man. You know, he announces what he wants to do. He sounds very noble in it. But Jesus looks past that man into his heart. As the pure and righteous judge, he knows that this man really doesn't know what he's getting into. You say you want to follow me. You say you want to give your life to me. You say you want to you know, follow me wherever I go. But did you know, by the way, that foxes have homes and birds have homes, but I don't even have a home. You know, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You know, did you know that following me is not going to be glamorous? In other words, you know, I mean, you see all these people getting healed. You see the power over the demonic realm. And I'm sure this man thought, that is the train that I want to hitch my wagon to. I mean, I want to, I want to be on that guy's team. And what Jesus announces is, hey, you know, you're seeing some wonderful things, but it's not always going to be easy on my team. And so he raises the bar and shows the man the deep cost of discipleship. And I find that quite often in a moment of emotional exuberance, 
we can sometimes commit things to the Lord that really we're not counting the cost. And this man needed to count the cost. In verse 21, another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. So in this case, this, you know, potential disciple says to Jesus, hey, you know, I do want to follow you. It's is sort of what he's saying. I do want to follow you. But after my parents die, you know, after my father dies, I want to honor my father and I want to care for him. And Jesus said, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Far from a calloused or cold-hearted statement, Jesus is dealing with a man who wants to delay following him. And Jesus is trying to say, listen, there's no excuse. You got to follow me. The time for devotion and the time for giving your life to me is now. Now, when he had gotten to the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And just the fatigue that Jesus experienced. There he is asleep as this storm is raging. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And so again, we see a picture of prayer in Matthew chapter 8. First the leper, then the centurion, then many people in the city of Capernaum who came to him. And now here in the boat, the disciples come and say, Lord, save us, we're perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and see, obey him. Now, I love this story of Jesus calming the wind and the wave and the storm because it demonstrates, obviously, the power of our king. You know, his ability to put down even the natural elements that were raging. And there's some speculation as to whether this storm was somehow demonically influenced or whether it was just a natural storm. But this kind of storm, an overwhelming storm, was common on the Sea of Galilee. This was perhaps one of the larger ones that these men had gone through. And they see Jesus there sleeping at total rest and complete peace. And their hearts are perplexed. And so they wake Jesus up and say, hey, you know, what are you doing? Wake up. Don't you care that we're perishing? I think oftentimes this is the statement of our hearts. Lord, I'm dying here. I'm perishing here. You're sleeping. I'm perishing. When really God is at rest and the Lord is at peace because he knows what he's doing. He knows that we're not perishing. He knows that he's going to get us to the other side. In fact, this is what he had announced to his disciples. He had given orders to go to the other side. And with the command of God comes the provision of God. And there are times, I think, in our lives where, like the disciples, we're confused. We feel like God is silent. We feel like God is asleep, like he's unaware of our condition. But he stood up as they woke him and said, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? At the end of the day, it's a trust issue, placing our faith and our confidence in the Lord, that he is able 
that he can see us to the other side. And so he rises, he rebukes the winds and the sea. There was a great calm and and the men, they marveled and said, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? So the authority of Christ. Now verse 28. When he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And so this is a more than likely Gentile kind of area. It's a little debated as far as exactly where this is, but likely on the eastern coast of the Lake of Galilee. He comes to this country of the Gadarenes and there are these two demon-possessed men. Now, Mark in his gospel records that there was one demon-possessed man. And obviously, that raises a question for us. Is this a contradiction? Two in Matthew, one in Mark. But if there's two, then obviously there is one as well. And Mark didn't say that there was only one. But there was probably one of the two demon-possessed men. There was probably one who was more outrageously possessed. And so Matthew records factually that there were two. Mark records thematically that there was one and highlights the one who had the legion within him. So these two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tomb so fierce that no one could pass that way, verse 28. And verse 29, behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now notice, of course, in verse 29, the insight that these demons had about Jesus. First of all, they understood that there was a coming time of torment. They say, have you come to torment us before the time. They knew that the time was coming, that their days were numbered, that there would be a moment and a time of torment, yet future, for them. And the Bible teaches, of course, that the lake of fire was created for the devil and his angels. But in verse 29, they also said, "Have you? what have you to do with us, O Son of God? Notice the title that they're giving to Jesus. And so they had great knowledge. Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. Now some attempt to build a case that these were definitely pigs that were being sold in Israel and eaten by Israelites, by Jews, which would have been against uh, the Old Testament law and covenant that they made with God. And so that the Lord was judging the pigs and the demons at the same time. I'm not certain that that's the case. I think regardless, we see what Satan does in a human's life or in anyone's life when he has full access. And, And here, His desire was to kill, and they enter into these pigs, and they immediately cause these pigs to kill themselves by rushing down the steep bank into the sea and drowning. And the herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him 
to leave their region. And so Matthew is pointing out the authority of Christ. And do we believe in his authority today? God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.